Well, good morning. I have a question for you. We get going this morning. Um, did you look at the sky a little bit differently this week? Instead of just giving it passing consideration, did you look with longing anticipation for the day that Jesus will appear there and make you glorious like He is glorious? Did you long for your future glory this week? Well, if you're like me, um, maybe you did that, maybe you didn't, um, but you probably did some groaning this week too. Anybody groan here this week? You experienced some pain, some heartache, some frustration, some sorrow. But did you also groan with anticipation for the day where those things will be no more? I hope you did, and I also hope that the Holy Spirit is going to use our passage today to help you do so even more. It's my favorite passage in Romans for a number of reasons, and chief among them is that God has used this passage more than any other to carry me through uh, the darkest days of my life. So today's a pretty significant um, day. Uh, Twelve years ago tonight, Uh, The members of Harmony Bible Church gathered in this very room uh, have a special congregational meeting uh, to approve me as the lead pastor. Twelve years ago, yeah. Most of you don't remember what you were doing twelve years ago tonight. I do. Um, And over these last dozen years, I've experienced some of the best days of my life, and quite honestly, almost all of the most difficult days of my life. So I want to be um, really clear that God has blessed me incredibly uh, during this time. I'm so thankful to be at Harmony Bible Church. I uh, love this church. I love you. Um, I love the opportunity to be a part of what God is doing here. Uh, I even have come to love Southeast Iowa. Truly, um, and I, I really mean this, I have zero desire uh, to be anywhere else, and if the Lord would see fit, uh, I would be happy if this is the end of the road for me, not anytime soon, but eventually. Um, and I really, truly do mean that. But at the same time, uh, there's been a great deal of loss and heartache and pain, and, and quite honestly, there's no other word for it than suffering uh, during my time here. And we might be asking, why are you telling us this? I'm telling you because, A, it's the truth, and I'm committed to doing nothing but telling you the truth. But B, it's because also the passage we're going to look at today is the passage that God has used to not only help me to survive this, but also to thrive in it. And it's my hope and prayer that I'm going to be able to preach this passage today in such a way that it's going to do the same for you. So I found myself groaning this week uh, for you. So Holy Spirit um, really impressed upon me how much um, you are suffering. And I really do mean you like all of you. And I realize that we're suffering to different degrees this morning, but all of us are suffering in some way. And some of us are suffering in very significant and deep ways. Some of you are suffering in ways that nobody else knows about. You've never told anybody else. And you maybe look good on the outside, good at keeping a a good face on the outside, but you're deeply hurting 
from something on the inside. And what I want you to hear today is that in some way I really believe that I'm groaning and suffering along with you. There's even somebody greater who's doing that. We're going to get to this in just a moment. But here's what I want you to know is that there's hope for that. There's healing for that. There's assurance for that. There's even confidence that God is working in that. And I've been praying this week, and I'm going to pray here in just a moment, that God's going to take this passage and he is going to use it to enable you not to only survive the suffering in your life, but to also thrive in it. And to that end, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive in, all right? Father, um, you know, you know what we need and you knew it before there even was a need. You knew it before uh, the world was even created. And I pray that you will comfort us with that fact today. And you also comfort us with the fact that you are sovereign over all, even over our suffering and over our difficulty. And I pray um, that in your grace, um, you will send your Holy Spirit to work amongst us. We, we know that, that he's here, uh, but we pray um, in accordance with your word that uh, if we ask him to work in our lives, that you will be gracious because you're a good father to give him to work and, and really to work in, in a, a more abundant way than we can even begin to imagine. Lord, I know a lot of us are hurting. We have pains and difficulties and struggles. And so, Lord, would you please uh, come in and just show us from your word how you are working, um, not despite those things, but in those things for our eternal good in Christ Jesus. Please do that amongst us and do it for your glory and for our good, both now and for all eternity. And we pray this in confidence in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So we're going to begin with a review here today. Uh, we're in a section of Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, where Paul gives us three realities that give us great hope in suffering. Number one, our future glory is much greater than our present suffering. Uh, number two, the Holy Spirit helps us in our suffering. And number three, God always uses suffering for our good. Talked about number one last week, and so we're going to do number two and number three today. We'll commence then with how the Spirit helps us in our suffering. Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, or for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. With the word likewise, Paul's telling us that just as our hope of future glory sustains us in suffering, so too does the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us with our suffering, uh, meaning he comes to our aid. And he comes to our aid by interceding for us. The word intercedes is a key word in verses 26 and 27. You'll notice it's mentioned in, in both uh, verses. And it means that the Holy Spirit pleads for us before the Father. When we're suffering, uh, one of the things that can be really difficult, especially as believers, is that uh, it can be very difficult to pray. Sometimes it can even feel impossible to do so. We can be so confused or frustrated or heartbroken, or lost, that, that words just fail us. 
And Paul says, get this, it's in these exact times, these moments, that the Spirit actually steps in and prays with us and for us. I love this uh, quote by commentator Doug Moo. He writes, there's one in heaven, the Son of God, who intercedes on our behalf, defending us from all charges that might be brought against us, guaranteeing salvation in the day of judgment. That's verse 34. We'll get to that next week. But there is also, Paul asserts in these verses, 26 to 27, an intercessor in the heart, the Spirit of God who effectively prays to the Father on our behalf throughout the difficulties and uncertainties of our lives here on earth. So brothers and sisters, right now as we are gathered here, Jesus is interceding for us in heaven. Do you want to know what Jesus is doing right now? You don't have to guess what Jesus is doing right now, okay? Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. But not only is Jesus praying for you in heaven, the Holy Spirit is praying for you in your heart. He's pleading with you and for you. I want you to note that Paul says the Holy Spirit groans as he intercedes for us. Now, if you were paying attention last week, okay, You should notice something here. That's the same word that Paul uses in verses 18 through 25 to talk about what creation does and what Christians do. We groan, and yet Paul says the Holy Spirit is groaning too. Now, the word groaning means agonized longings. So the Holy Spirit in our hearts is agonizing over the suffering and the difficulty and the weaknesses that we experience, and he is crying out to the Father on our behalf, pleading with him. Let me ask you, um, let me say this. We we really got to understand that even though when we're suffering, we might feel like we are alone, we are never alone. If you're a believer, you are never alone because the Holy Spirit is always right there with you, agonizing over your suffering and crying out to the Father on your behalf. Don't you find it encouraging when someone says that they're praying for you? And not just like they're saying they're praying for you, but you know that they're really praying for you, right? Because there are times where people say, I'm praying for you, and you're thinking, no, you're not. Oh, come on. You have this experience, right? You know, we kind of just say it, uh, you know, because we want to make people feel good or just kind of a something that we don't know what to say. It's like, oh, I'm praying for you. But it's really, really encouraging when you know somebody is a prayer warrior and they tell you you're praying for you. That's encouraging. I had a really encouraging moment last week when there was a a mom who shared with me that her two-year-old son prays for me every night. And uh, yeah, amen, for sure. And, you know, I loved that little guy before, but I really love him now. I can't say that I have a favorite two-year-old in the church, okay? But he might be my favorite two-year-old in the church. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit, friends, is praying for you all the time. And so just like I love that two-year-old guy, I love him even more because I know he's praying for me. Shouldn't this make us love the Holy Spirit even more? Because that's what he is doing all the time for us. Now, that's an incredible encouragement as we suffer. But if you're paying attention, you will notice that there's also a challenge for us here. 
Verse 27 tells us that when the Spirit prays for us, He doesn't pray for our will to be done, but rather for God's will to be done. This is challenging because as we're going to see here in a moment, God's will can be different than ours, especially when it comes to suffering. We almost always pray for suffering to be removed, but oftentimes God has a different plan, a plan that includes not less suffering, but more suffering. And this brings us face to face with a huge decision that we must make when it comes to suffering, which is, are we going to submit to God's plan and trust that his is better than ours? Are we going to say his will be done or insist on my will be done? This is a choice that we have to make when we suffer. We have to look at it square in the eye and we have to decide, am I going to focus on my will being done or am I going to make it my desire for God's will be done regardless of what that means for me? And here's what I can tell you. It's understandable that we want to say my will be done when we suffer. But when we do, we miss out on the hope and the confidence that comes from trusting that God has a much bigger, better plan for our suffering than we do. You see, see, when we suffer, we have to step back and we have to say, is God sovereign? And is God good? And is God omniscient? Is God all wise? Because if he is all of those things, then that means that he often does have a much better and a much bigger plan for what's going on in our lives than we do. And when we refuse to submit to God's will being done, you know what that leaves us? It leaves us without hope. It leaves us without confidence. It leaves us without assurance. Because what we find in suffering, what suffering brings us face to face with is that we are not in control. We're not in control. And so if it's got to be my will, then hope goes out the window, confidence goes out the window. But on the other hand, if I can trust and I can say, no, God's will be done because his will is better, his will is bigger, his will is the best for me, then I can be filled with hope and confidence and assurance no matter what I go through because I can know that what is best for me is what God's going to do for me. I'm learning this very lesson right now as I continue uh, to struggle with sleeping. I shared with you uh, before, but for the better part, really more than two decades now, uh, I've had a couple of sleeping disorders in which it makes it virtually impossible for me uh, to wake up rested. So I, I don't remember a day in the last 20 years where I've woken up feeling good. In fact, most of the time, most of the day, I'm just struggling uh, to stay awake, which is really, really difficult when you are trying to read and you're trying to study and you're trying uh, to write sermons. Of course, you know, my will in this is what? I, I, I want to be he healed, right? I want it to be over. And I make this argument with God. I could be a much better pastor, leader, husband, dad, if you would just let me get some sleep. That's my will. And, and by the way, here's what I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get all kinds of suggestions uh, after this, okay, for how to get better sleep, okay? And, and I just want to say to you, I've gone to Mayo Clinic. I've gone to the University of Iowa. I've gone to all kinds of doctors, taken all kinds of medicine, got weighted blankets, try all different kind of things. I've even tried essential oils, okay? <laughs> I don't know who those things are working for, that they ain't working for me. Okay, so your suggestions are, are, are welcome, but they're, uh, yeah, whatever, okay? Um, but he, here's what um, I've just had to come to the conclusion on. 
I'm having to come to grips with the fact that God's plan probably isn't to heal me. I believe that he can. I really truly believe that he can. And I will continue to pray that he can. And you can pray that he, he will. Okay? But I don't think that that probably is his plan. But rather in the words of 2 Corinthians twelve nine to show me that his grace is sufficient for me because his power is made perfect in weakness. So he's showing me that hope is not found in getting what I want, but rather in the fact that he's doing something much better and much greater than what I want. That he doesn't work most of all through my strength, but rather through my weakness. Of course, this truth uh, applies differently to you, but it does apply in some way, in some specific type of suffering that you're going through, And the question then is, will you accept God's plan and experience the hope that comes from doing so? Here's a third thing that provides hope and suffering. It goes right along with a first and a second. God always uses suffering for our good. Look at verses 28 uh, through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are many a great text in Romans. In my opinion, this is the greatest one of all. Like this is the pinnacle of the mountaintop. Let me show you why. Verse 28 We have a great promise, and then verse 29 through 30, we have Paul's explanation for how we can know that this promise is true. Now, the promise, of course, is is a very famous promise, right? It's a very famous statement that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Once again, the promise is for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, uh, we are all familiar with this statement. Many of us have it memorized. Quite a few of us have it up on Hobby Lobby things in our house, right? Or on our coffee mugs. But since there is a lot of misunderstanding and misapplication of this verse, I want to walk through five important things as we are introduced to it, all right? So here you go. And one, the promise is only for Christians. This promise is only for Christians. That's who those who love God are. And only Christians can know that all things are going to work for good for them. In fact, consider this. Christians can trust that both good things and bad things will end up for their good, while non-Christians need to know that even good things will end up being bad for them. How can I say this? Well, if you remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that those who refuse to love God, God ends up giving them what they want. He gives them over to their desires for what they want, what they consider to be good. The problem is, is that the end of that, the end of that road is judgment. It's wrath. It's destruction. And so I just want to speak to you, if, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ today, There's a warning here, but there's also an invitation. And the invitation is that if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you will respond to God's love for you by loving him back, 
you can know that everything in your life, even the worst things in your life, God will ultimately work out for your good. And so if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, place your faith in him today. Two, Paul isn't saying that all things are good. We need to be crystal clear about this. There are many things in life that aren't good. Cancer isn't good. Depression isn't good. Disability isn't good. A miscarriage isn't good. A spouse cheating isn't good. An addiction isn't good. And God is never going to call these things good, and he is never going to expect us to accept them as good. It's really important that, that we get this. God, Paul is not saying here, oh, it's all going to be good. We need to stop using that phrase in the church. It's not all going to be good. God's going to work it out for good, but those things that I listed and many more are not good in and of themselves. Three, well, it's hard to use this in the ESV. Paul's saying it's God who works all things together for our good. A better translation of this verse is God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. So Paul isn't saying that all things are going to work out. In other words, it isn't hakuna matata or don't worry, be happy. Instead, it means that God is actively working in all situations for our good. Are you getting that? The situation is not good. But God is working in that situation for our good. He's going to use what's going on in that situation, that circumstance, that difficulty, that suffering for our ultimate good. For, the word all is important here. Now, do you know what the word all means? You should underlie this. All means all. It means everything. And there's a lot of encouragement here if we're willing to receive it. God uses everything that's a part of our life for our good. This everything even includes our failures, our weaknesses, and get this, even our sin. There's a lot of, do you see the encouragement here? That, that we can't out God's grace, that even in the worst decisions that we make in our life, God is so gracious and so good and so powerful that he's going to take those decisions and he is going to use them for our good. Now, I just want to warn you here for a second. Don't do not, do you not, don't dare, okay, go out of here and say, well, I guess I'm going to send them because God will use it for my good. I think Paul would say something like, your condemnation is just, if you have that attitude. That's not the point. The point is, is that we can look back at the mistakes and failures and weaknesses and even our sin, and we can marvel at how God is using and is going to use them ultimately to bring us good. Fifth, and this is the most important point, the good God works for us is making us like Jesus. So if you don't get this, you will misunderstand the text. But the good that God is working isn't oftentimes the good that we think of, but rather the good that God is working in all things is the good of making us like Jesus. Now, we need to see the connection here between verses 28 and 29. So, so follow along closely with me. God works all things together for good for those who love him 
And those who love him are those who are called according to his purpose. To be called according to his purpose means to be saved for a reason. So God saved you for a reason. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer in Jesus Christ because God has a purpose, he has a plan, he has a reason for your life. And do you know what that is? Paul is telling us in verse 29 that it is to conform us to the image of God's Son. Another word for purpose in verse 29 is plan. I'm sorry, verse 28 is plan. God has a plan for his children, a plan to make us like Jesus. This is the good God works in all things. When Paul says, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, what he means is that not only does God adopt us into his family, but he also works to give us his family resemblance. God isn't satisfied just to bring us into his family? Oh no, he's got bigger plans than that. And his bigger plan is to make us like our big brother Jesus. That's what he is working, that's what he is doing, that is the good that he is bringing about in everything we experience, everything we go through in life. To put all this together then, God uses everything that happens in our lives to bring us the greatest possible good, and that is to be like Jesus. The good that God is always working for us is to make us as humble and as gentle, kind, courageous, patient, strong, and holy as Jesus is. That's God's plan for us. It's always been God's plan for us. And as we're going to see here in just a moment, this is our destiny. In the end, we'll be completely like Jesus. And in the meantime, God's using every circumstance, every difficulty, even every sin to get us there. And again, this is what gives us hope in suffering. It enables us to look at the hard things in life and to realize that what Satan and others meant for evil, God means for good. It empowers us to look at our suffering to say with Job, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. This is a mind shift that will completely transform your life if you can begin to see that these hard things that come into your life do not mean that God has abandoned you. It does not mean that they are meaningless. It does not mean that God doesn't love you, but rather... These are means that God is going to use to bring you the greatest good you could ever possibly experience, and that is being like Jesus. God's in the process, friends, of working to make you great. He wants to make you great, to make you an awesome display of his mercy, grace, and love. And everything you go through in life is a means to that ultimate end. As we talked about last week, our end as believers is glory. We're going to be glorified like Jesus is glorified. This is where we're headed, to full and final salvation. And what Paul is telling us in our text today is that everything that happens to us along the way, even and especially the hard things, are the means that God uses to get us there. So I want to be really gentle about what I'm going to say here. But so oftentimes, and and I have been there, we just repeatedly refused to go along with God's plan, and we refuse to, to submit to what he is trying to do, and we want to go our own way. We want to make it work the way we want to make it work. We want the good that we want, and when we do that, we are missing out on the real good, the best good, 
And the way that we don't miss out on that is we take the circumstances and the struggles and the suffering that we face and we believe and we trust that God is sovereign and that is God is good and that he is wants to work in those things to bring us the best good that we can ever possibly receive. And when we submit to that, oh boy, then is when we not only survive suffering, we begin to thrive in it. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean the suffering goes away. But it means that the suffering begins to be used to transform us into the people that God wants us to be and also the people that we want to be. Now, all that said, here's how we can know this is what God is doing. Okay? How, how can we know that all things are going to work together for good for those who love God? Well, in verses 29 through 30, Paul describes the process by which God makes us like Jesus. And in doing so, he gives, uh, gives us what many have called the golden chain of salvation. Now, I'm not going to call it the golden chain. I'm going to call it the unbreakable chain because I think that's a better description of what Paul is trying to get across here. Uh, and so I've got a chain here that I'm going to use to illustrate uh, this unbreakable chain of salvation. Although it is gold, gold chain here. Anybody believe that this is actually gold? No, it's like $7 from Farm King, okay? Um, but... This chain uh, is represented by five words in our text, five links. Link number one is foreknew. Link number two is predestined. Link number three is called. Link number four is justified. Link number five is glorified. And I know as I get into this right now, you might be like, I'm going to take a little snooze. These are just big theological terms. I can't tell you how much these theological truths are not just theological truths, but they are the rock-solid foundation for you to be able to look at what God is doing, not only in history, but in your life. And it has huge application for how you face the day-to-day of the Christian life. So I'm going to walk through them and explain what each of these five links is and what they mean. But before I do so, I need to point out four things here about this unbreakable chain of salvation. First is that in verses 29 through 30, Paul is giving us God's perspective on salvation. So this is, this is salvation from, from God's viewpoint. It's not salvation from our viewpoint. We're going to get to uh, salvation from our perspective in Romans chapter 10. But in Romans 8 and Romans chapter 9, this is salvation from God's perspective. Second, you will note before each link in the chain, there is the word he. He there is God. So it is God who is doing all of these things. Remember, God is actively working to bring all things about for our good through suffering. And it is God who is doing it. So he does all of it. Third, you'll notice the word also. You see that word also? It's after every link in the chain. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is meant to show us that the chain is unbreakable. You do not get one without the other. And if you have one, you have all the rest forever, and there is nothing that can break that chain. Then last, you notice the word those. 
Those is before all of these five links in the chain. Why does this matter? Because it shows us that these are not just sterile theological concepts, but rather they are about the personal relationship that God has with all of his children, that he has with you, with you. Now, with that said, those things in mind, let's walk through the four links, all right? I'm sorry, the four links, the five links. The first link is foreknew or elected. Now, I use the word elected because the word foreknew here, listen to this, means to choose beforehand, to choose beforehand. So, it is not that God simply looks down through the corridors of time and knows who is going to place their faith in Him, and on the basis of that, He has a foreknowledge of them. What Paul is saying is that God knows us because He chose us. He knows you because He chose you. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, 4, and 5. Look at this very closely. Even as He chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. What did He do? He chose when? Before He made the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless in His sight. That's conformity to the image of His Son. Why did he do this? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, um, as I prepare this message, as I'm giving this message, I know uh, that it's possible you struggle with this idea of God choosing of election. But let me see if I can help you with it a little bit. Another way that the word for new can be translated is for love. Because in the Bible, when God knows someone, it's not just a mental cognition of them. When God knows someone, it means he has a personal relationship with them. It means that he has chosen to put his or place his love on them and bring them into a relationship with himself. For new, for love. He elects us, he chooses us in love. So, I just want to encourage you. I know, again, we can struggle with this, but I will say two things about that. Number one, the Bible teaches this over and over and over again. I could spend another hour and a half walking through all the Bible passages. But more than that, just think how amazing it is that of the 117 billion people that have walked on this planet, God decided to choose you. He decided to love you. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? So that's the first link in the chain, elected. Link number two is predestined. Now, I also need to talk a little bit about this word, all right? Because uh, I hear a lot about this predestination stuff. And let me see if I can help us to understand what, what really is going on here. This word means to be, uh, to preset a destination. So think about it, predestined, preset a destination. And with it, Paul's telling us that God predetermined what our destination would be, where we would end up, which is again conformed to the image of his son. Having chosen us, link one, God then predetermined our destination, link two, which is being fully and finally like Jesus. We could think of predestination in terms of destiny. God marked out a destiny for us, and that destiny is to be made like Jesus. So, link one, elected. Link two, predestined. He chose. Link two, he predetermined where we were going to end up. And that leads to link three, which is called. This term has to do with how God applies 
election and predestination to us. So think about it this way. Um, Election and predestination happened before God created the world. But then in order to see that those things actually took place in our life, at some point in our lives, we hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and gives us the ability to be able to respond to the gospel so that we place our faith in Jesus Christ and are saved. Paul explains this in 1 Thessalonians 4, or sorry, 1, 4 through 5. Notice the language here again. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In this passage, we see that there is both a general call and an effective call. The general call is the call to to all to repent and believe the gospel. However, this call is only in word until the Holy Spirit comes with power and conviction and makes it effective in our lives. When Paul, so when Paul says that God called us, he not only means that he invites us to be saved, but that he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts and gives us the ability and the willingness to respond positively. Now, this is where this, this whole discussion of total inability that we've come back to over and over again in Romans is so important. Do you remember what total inability means? So inability means that we in ourselves are dead in our transgressions and sins, and therefore we do not have the ability to actually believe the gospel and be saved. We first need the Holy Spirit to come in and to make us alive, to take the blinders off of our eyes, to give us the ability to be able to respond and believe the gospel so that we can be saved. And why is this so important? It's so important because it emphasizes for us that all of our salvation is a work of God, that there is nothing in us that can earn our salvation, merit our salvation, do anything that would make or cause God to actually save us. It was his plan from before the beginning of time, and it's actually his working in history that brings it about. So he first elected us again, and then he predestined what our destination would be, And then at some point in our lives, he sends the Holy Spirit. And as we read or as we hear the gospel, our eyes come open and we place our faith in Jesus Christ and are saved. Which leads then to the fourth link, which is justify. So those he elected and those he predestined, he called. And then once we are called, we are justified. Now we've spent the last six months talking about justification So I will just quickly review that justification means that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God acquits us of all the charges that could be brought against us because of our sin. He forgives us, but then he also accepts us into a relationship with himself. He declares us not guilty, but also righteous in his sight so that now we become his dearly loved children children who have the righteousness of Jesus Christ and so are fully pleasing in God's sight. I need to point out here that uh, very often when we think of salvation, we think of it almost solely in terms of justification. That moment where we placed our faith in Jesus and we were saved. We have to realize that salvation is much bigger than simply justification and simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ and being forgiven of our sins. Salvation includes election, it includes predestination, 
It includes calling. It includes justification. And oh, by the way, it also includes the fifth link, and that is glorification, being glorified. So, so think about it this way. We should never consider salvation simply in terms of justification. And the reason for that is, is that there's no one who is justified who is not also elected, predestined, called, and ultimately glorified. So let's talk about this fifth link. And it's a link that we talked about last week, right? What does it mean to be glorified? To be glorified means to be completely and fully, totally, 100% like Jesus. It means to come to a place where you are no longer experiencing any effects of sin whatsoever. No pain, no difficulty, not, no sin in your own life, no conflict, none of that. And what is interesting, last week we talked about how this is future glory, right? So that's something in the future force. But if you're paying attention in verse 30, what is the tense of glorified? I just told you. What is the tense of glorified? It is past tense, right? We were glorified. They are glorified. Now, how can Paul say that we are glorified? Because I don't know about you. I ain't glorified. You could say amen to that, all right? I'm still, you know, weak, frail, flawed human being. And I will be as long as I walk in this earth and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So as far as my experience goes, I'm not glorified. And yet Paul says that all those who are elected and predestined and called and justified are glorified. What is Paul talking about here? Well, remember, he's telling us this is salvation from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, it is such a sure thing that we are actually going to be glorified that it's just as if it is all already true for us. Now, what difference does this mean? Well, the difference, or difference does it make, and the difference that it makes, friends, is that he who began a good work in you is going to carry it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That there is absolutely nothing that can prevent you from fully and finally being like Jesus. It is an unbreakable chain of salvation. God is going to do it. He's got it from beginning to end. And it does not, listen, it does not rest on you. So you can go to bed tonight knowing that no matter what you're going through, no matter how heavy your heart is, no matter what you've got coming at you this week, no matter what situation your, your relationships are in, you can know that God has the final chapter of the story written, and that final chapter for you as a believer in Jesus Christ is that you are going to be perfect like Jesus is perfect. That is where it's going to end. And so, let me talk to you here in conclusion about this. This tells us um, that suffering doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. It tells us suffering isn't evidence that God doesn't love us. It tells us that our suffering isn't meaningless. And it tells us that even if we can't see it, God's doing good things, the best things for us in our suffering. I want you to think about Jesus again right now. As we talked about, Jesus is up in heaven at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. But you know what Jesus' body is like right now? It's a perfect body, but it's a perfect body with scars. You know that Jesus has scars? How do we know this? Well, you remember after uh, he was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples. 
When he appeared to his disciples, there was a guy named Thomas, one of the disciples who wasn't there. And not being there, he said, unless I can see the wounds and I can put my finger in them, I will never believe. A week later, Jesus shows up and Thomas is there. And Thomas is like, I believe. And Thomas is like, I don't even need to put my finger in the wounds anymore. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you're going to. And those wounds, those scars, Jesus still has and will have for all eternity. Why? Well, we know for one reason it's going to be a reminder that he was wounded for our transgressions. It will be an eternal reminder of what he has done for us, of the love that God has for us in Jesus. But I think it's also a picture for us right now to recognize that we get the crown by going through the cross. And that our suffering doesn't diminish our future glory, it enhances our future glory. That these light and momentary sufferings that we're going to are, are, are working for us a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. That doesn't mean that they're small. It doesn't mean that they're insignificant. It just means that they are the way that God is going to work to bring us the greatest glory and the greatest good, the greatest great that we can ever achieve, and that is being like Jesus. Jesus has wounds in heaven. You have wounds right now. And those wounds are God's means for making you like Jesus. So embrace them. Embrace them as God's means of doing you the greatest good that you can ever experience, not only in eternity, but right now. I want to pray for you. We bow your heads.